Welcome to Good Natured, a podcast where you can join us for uplifting chat that shine a light on conservation challenges. We interview inspiring conservationists who come from many different backgrounds, who each engage with conservation in their own unique way. I'm Julia. And I'm Sophia. Today, we're thrilled to have Sarah Liel Middleton on the podcast with us. Get ready to hear about the dynamism of plants, bringing global challenges home, and the role of representation in biology and conservation. Hi, Sophia. Hi, Julia. Today, we will be talking with Sarah Lil Middleton, who is a PhD student in the Plant Ecology Lab at the University of Oxford. And she's based between the departments of zoology and plant sciences. And Sarah is interested in using both functional traits and demographic approaches to understand how different plant communities respond to global environmental change. Sarah is also an advocate for equality, diversity, and inclusion in science. She has written about and facilitated discussions on decolonizing science, and she also founded the Black British Biology Project to highlight the historical contributions of Black Britons to the biological sciences. And an interesting fun fact about Sarah is the fact that she has grown in Oxford and is now studying the impact of climate change in Oxford. So she is, she's got that local lens as well, which is something that we are going to talk about and we're very excited to hear our thoughts on that. Yeah, so let's hear from Sarah. Hi, Sarah. We're so happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. <laughs> we wanted to start this episode by asking you, uh, you know, kind of like the origin question, really, which is when would you say you became a conservationist or in what ways are you in the process of becoming one if you don't consider yourself one already? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually. And it's interesting in terms of the different uh, conversations that I've had with people where they sort of label me as a conservationist or like different blog posts that I've written or a paper that I'm co-authoring on about conservation. So I've been being absorbed into this, uh, I guess, discipline, but I wouldn't consider myself a conservationist just yet. I would describe myself more as a plant ecologist and science communicator, but it has links to conservation. Sarah, as a plant ecologist, I'm sure you must know that so many people are unaware of how amazing plants can be. Your PhD focuses on grasslands and within that the grass species Brachypodium sylvaticum. And in some ways grasses are very familiar, many people come across them every day, but perhaps we don't always understand them or think about the different species involved in what we're seeing. What are your favourite things about grasses that people usually don't know? Grasses are a pretty amazing bunch of uh, plant species. So they are the fifth largest plant family after... Um, the sunflower family, orchid family, the bean family, and the coffee family. And I think people overlook grasses and they kind of just see it as a, a green carpet. So when they go to like walk their dog or something like that, or just a green expanse and don't and just think it's all a one type of species. But actually, as I said, it's like about 12,000 species of grasses. People, I think, overlook grasses and we're much closer to them than we think because a lot of the foods that we eat are staple foods so things like different types of cereals so like rice barley wheat maize millet as well so it's also fed to cattle and so forth but we eat a lot of those directly 
so we're a lot closer to to grasses than we think and also you know like things like bamboo which is being used increasingly for types of clothing as well so yeah grasses are cool and also if we think uh, more broadly about like grasslands so it's not just um, in grasslands it's not just grass species you also get like forbs and other flowering plants as well they cover between like 30 and 40 percent of the land surface of the earth so they're very very important so you study the potential impacts of climate change through experiments that control the amount of rain to stimulate droughts and flooding events. Could you tell us a bit more about how can experiments like yours help us understand and plan for the future? Yeah, so um, the experiments at uh, Whiteham, it's called the Raindrop Project. It's meant to simulate quite an extreme level of drought that's supposed to happen in the UK. So a lot of projections for later on in this century predict that the UK will be much drier and hotter summers. So you can translate this knowledge from the the project that I'm working on at Raindrop, uh, the climate change, to... So this is quite a, a, a rare habitat in the UK. It's a calcareous grassland, and it's ma- managed like a meadow. And there's we've lost 97% of our meadows in the UK. So just in itself, just learning how the meadow might respond to climate change is hugely important because it supports a lot of insects and birds and, and so forth. So in my particular work, I look at traits and looking at how the population, that particular population, it will manage with drought. So if we see with an extreme drought that we get less growth, less survival, and it's not reproducing as well, then that will have impacts, I guess, for this particular species. But you can maybe translate it to other grass species, which is helpful for conservation managers. So I'm not working directly with like conservation managers, but you can use that kind of knowledge about how the grasses respond to conservationists. So you study the functional traits of plants. Uh, could you tell us a bit more, what is a functional trait and how do you measure them and why do they matter? Yeah, yeah. So functional traits, you can describe them as characteristics or features that are measurable, that you can measure on, usually it's on an individual organism. So if we think, um, so they're used also, not just in in plant sciences, but also in animals, increasingly being used in microbes as well, and also fungi. So if we're thinking about plants, it can be how tall the plant is, the size of the, the leaves, how thick the leaves are, how many seeds the plant produces how deep the roots go. So it's any sort of characteristic or feature. So they can be sort of physical characteristics as well, which is some of the ones that I've described. They can also be physiological. So looking at the sort of biochemistry and of uh, the diff- different chemicals like in the plants and stuff. And they're increasingly being used for sort of their predictive capacity in terms of if you can characterize your individual by a bunch of different traits or characteristics, and try and relate that to the environment you can then predict where it might occur with if you you know have a particular environmental change i don't know like a drought which is in the case i'm using it or a land use change or invasive species or something like that then you can try and predict where it might occur uh, if you can kind of make that link which is what a lot of um, ecologists are trying to use it for Okay, so just to check if I understand, you measure these functional traits, so for example, height or the depth of the roots and the size of the leaves, and you see how those traits might be affected by certain conditions, so having less water or having more water. And do you do that sort of within this one species or do you do it across a bunch of species to see which species might fare better under these conditions or worse? Mm-hmm. So it depends like on your on your research question. So for me, I'm interested in 
looking at for the brachypodium my focal species measuring the traits there and also looking taking a community approach so seeing what is the they call it like trait space so what kind of space in terms of traits do, does the community um hold and you can see if there'll be a shift with the the drought so is it being pushed to one certain size so like or most of the plants are shifting to become smaller, for example, less high. Or is there a shift in the other direction? Or is it a shift, the same shift to all the species? Or is there slight differences and things? So I can tell you quite a lot about how the community is doing. So it depends which level that you measure these traits at. Cool. And have you been finding that they get smaller when they're thirstier? Or overall, sort of, how's it looking? So... Um, I'm going to be measured. So I haven't measured them yet because um, a lot of the traits are destructive. So I'm going to have to be taking like leaf samples. I didn't want that to affect the survival of the plants that I've been measuring since 2019. So I'll have an answer for you maybe next year. <laughs> but from observations, it's quite interesting. They do seem a little bit shorter and have less leaves. And what's quite interesting is that some of my the target species that seem to have like shifted so plants can move obviously they don't have legs and things but it's kind of they kind of creep towards the better conditions so because I've, I've marked them like year on year and it seems to like a few of them seem to have like moved towards the outside of the shelter where there's more rainfall so it's like oh I can sense with my roots ah, that that's really cool yeah I know I was like really I was like wait wait a second you've moved like five or six centimeters I was like you weren't there last <laughs> how do they how do they creep I didn't know plants could creep so you see, I guess, like, in the films, like, tumbleweed and stuff, that's, like, a different thing. But here, yeah, I think it senses... So obviously, like, we don't see the roots underground, but um, they're quite extensive. And I think it senses where there's, like, more resources, in this case, like, more rainfall. And I think it just starts... grows towards where there's better resources. It's a bit like a sunflower. It kind of faces the sun, you know, it tracks. So it's that kind of um, thing. So it did that with quite a few. I haven't, like, done all the sort of analysis yet but just from observation I was like wait a second you you've moved a bit <laughs> so. I mean that's fascinating and and also uh, it just makes me think that's the problem with my house plants you see they can't move away <laughs> so they're just like in the conditions that I put them in and if it's not right then they'll just slowly like shrink <laughs> yeah because they're stuck in the pot so <laughs> exactly <laughs> wow that's so interesting I mean they're so dynamic in a way that I think is not appreciated we're starting to appreciate plants a little bit more because there is this issue with like plant awareness disparity but I think with lockdown people going on or who are stuck sort of in the same local area and go for the same walk I think people are starting to notice like small changes in the environment and like the time the flowering times and things like that so I think people are starting to realize that plants actually can you know move and change and like you see like the flowering develop and stuff so that's so cool well, that leads quite nicely into our next question. You grew up in Oxford, did your undergrad here, and now your PhD, including your fieldwork in Whiteham Woods. What has it been like to address a global challenge like climate change in a place you're so deeply rooted in? Oh, that's a great question. No one's actually ever asked me that. <laughs> I think the first thing, like, I care really deeply about, like, where I grew up in, in Oxford, and I've moved around quite a lot. Um, and I've, like notice things in my own lifetime so I'm like in my late 20s I haven't been around for that long but I've noticed like changes in terms of like the land use changes or like the weather patterns as well so I think for me it, I, I, I think it's really important to understand how 
my local area is being impacted by climate change. So for me, this is a really cool project to actually see up at Whiteham, um, which I would go as a, a, a little kid and the surrounding sort of areas and things um, to understand how that's being, that specific place is being impacted by climate change. And I think doing a dry experiment is pretty cool <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, that's a cool question. Um, because I've done field work elsewhere as well, but I, I am always kind of drawn. So I am drawn to like tropical places. I have done quite a bit of field work there, but I'm always kind of drawn somehow back to the UK. I'm not sure. Maybe I like the sort of local and homeliness feeling. <laughs> well, I mean, there's that, but also White and Woods is one of the best places to be a plant ecologist, right? I mean, ecology in general there has been studied for so many decades. The amount mm. of data is amazing it's one of my favorite places probably in the world and I've visited quite a few I don't know I just feel like an instant like calm and just like appreciation for like nature there and it's just really nice to spend time there what's your ideal day in Whiteham oh an ideal day um I would say cycling uh cycling there so up the, up the hills <laughs> which I have managed and then going around with my camera and just kind of looking at the plants there's quite a few orchids there yeah just looking up at the trees taking in like with all my senses so like smelling all the like bluebells if it's the right time of year and just doing like the same route in um different seasons as well and just seeing like the changes and the leaf color changes and, and stuff yeah. that's really interesting what you just said about using all your senses is that something that is quite important to you just like making sure that you take all of that in so I really love walking around in nature barefoot because I feel really grounded that way and then just like touching and noticing like small details and things like in the bark patterns or just like the leaves and then looking at like, the different colors different shades of green smelling I don't do any tasting though <laughs> um unless it's unless it's blackberries so there's a really nice um bush at my field site so if it breaks like I just walk down the the hill and then just like get my little Tupperware and just pick full of uh pick um make a, a whole uh box full of um blackberries and that would be my snack so so that, that's the tasty idea the snacks of nature but I like this idea of being like the mindfulness of it you know like sometimes we just kind of like forget that we can experience nature in all these different ways and we just end up just like you know looking at things but not really interacting in these other ways and I, I find that really cool we know that in addition of your PhD work, you also founded the Black British Biology Project. And so that was to highlight the historical contribution of Black Britons to the biological sciences. Could you tell us a bit more about how the project came about and, you know, what are your goals for it? Yeah, so it came about last year, I think, sort of when the resurgence of Black Lives Matter happened. And there was all this sort of like, understanding of like negativity and very difficult situation and very for a lot yeah for a lot of black people and for me with this project um I'm, a, I'm so I'm a natural like optimist and for me I really this project is about sort of reframing sort of black people because often in the media we're kind of portrayed as sort of lazy or not trustworthy or very sort of negative um stereotypes so for this project I wanted to like showcase like the amazing contributions that um often these forgotten scientists or naturalists have made from history and sort of until until now so that was kind of the point of it to kind of yeah reframe the sort of narrative and also to work towards sort of decolonizing science so that was sort of the main aim 
and then it just sort of came about from just doing I guess over the years like trying to decolonize my own mind and just do lots of reading around and trying to find better representation of people sort of who look like me in the sciences so yeah I guess it's a culmination of like the reading that I've done in the past and then it was just a light bulb moment I don't really like to use that word but I was like no no no, something needs to change I was like oh okay maybe this project can contribute in some way Mm. and what do you feel like you've learned from the projects did you have any sort of particular discoveries of people who inspired you yeah so I think the first one I came across was John Edmonston who was a former slave who actually was instrumental in teaching Charles Darwin um, the art of taxidermy which is like uh, animal preservation and he gave him like 40 hours of tuition but like if you look at Darwin's like notes and, and, and his work and stuff he doesn't mention John Edmonston by name so he's just kind of like a forgotten sort of person even though he was like very instrumental and probably used those skills to go you know with his famous work for the Finches on the Beagle Voyage so I think that for me that was just like wow I had no idea about this person so I was an adult when I found this out and I was like everyone should know about this especially in the sciences because Darwin is so famous you know right and if his Finches hadn't been preserved right how would they have been able to compare them for example yes um so so for me that was like wow it's currently on pause the project but the aim is to make like an open access repository so educators and um from like schools to like higher education institutions like to use this um to help sort of rebalance the curriculum and sort of help towards um decolonization so yeah it involved like talks i guess with um i've done talks with like zsl um trying to look at archives so it involves yeah, talking to a lot of people. And how can people help with the project? Uh, I guess if you come across any black British naturalists or biologists, like, let me know. I'm currently in the process of trying to get a website put together, but you can like contact me. That's, that's a really exciting project. I was wondering, so talking about, you know, you kind of mentioned the importance of having representation as well and, uh, and knowing what people are, are up to and what, what's been done in the past and present. I, I also saw that you were the co-founder of the BIPOC STEM network at the University of Oxford. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that as well and like why it's important to have those networks in place. Yeah, yeah. So um, that again was founded uh, by four of us at uh, Oxford University. So yeah, that came about also in the height of the sort of Black Lives Matter sort of protests. But we'd had these discussions like previously. It was like, no, okay, we really need to push for this. So yeah, so I guess the aim of the network is to uh, provide safe space and support Black, Indigenous and people of colour at Oxford and also to promote their work and just, yeah, kind of have a space where we can share, I guess, issues that we've had with microaggressions, but also I think also share the joy as well so it's a mixture of kind of both make it you know because I mean it is hard navigating academia which is traditionally for white men so yeah it's providing that space and also trying to influence policy to make things easier for people like us and in terms of that yeah representation we're in the process of starting like a, a mentorship scheme and we're trying to sort of think it think of it as a I heard it somewhere being described like mentorship should be like a constellation of, of mentors that you have. So it's not just a linear, like you have um, a PhD student being mentored by, let's say, a postdoc or something, but you can go to different people. So you can go to a professor for a certain uh, issues and then go to um, 
a postdoc for other issues. And then so you get expertise on different things from different people and put less pressure on that one individual to mentor all different types of topics. I love that metaphor, the constellation of mentors. That's that's a beautiful image. Yeah, it's really nice. It really stuck with me. I can't remember exactly who who coined that um, term, but amazing. I think yeah, really amazing and important initiative within the university. Earlier, you mentioned being an optimist. So, the next question we're going to ask you is about is a question that we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Do you feel optimistic about the future of nature, and if so, why? I do. I, I it doesn't mean that I'm not concerned, but um. I see a lot of good people doing a lot of like hard work, which really motivates me, I think. And there's still that sense of hope, but you need hope in this kind of, you know, these kind of situations. And I see like really great initiatives, for example, getting sort of kids in touch with nature, all these sort of um, things that can help with conservation. So like in the month of June, there's like 30 Days Wild run by the Wildlife Trust, which is great. And then, yeah, so there's lots of sort of diff- different initiatives that I'm seeing, which, yeah, make me really optimistic and hopeful. We have reached the final question for the podcast. And uh, that's another question that we ask all our guests. So could you tell us about another conservationist you admire, if you have any role models and like, if so, you know why? Oh, okay. <laughs> that's another hard question about, so yeah, role models. Um, which again, quite a few people have asked me. And I find it a little bit sad that I say I wouldn't, I, I don't have a role model because I'm yet to kind of see someone like me who's in sort of conservation or like ecology or my sort of field so I'm kind of just finding my own path I guess hopefully being a role model for those who come after me I guess (laughs) I mean that's that's an amazing thing to do (laughs) I am looking for one I guess (laughs) dad send out send out the search yeah but you know though like I feel that's where social media is so powerful at, at at the moment like I know I think I think it's still happening this week. It was Black Blackbirders Week. And uh, it's just amazing to see people being like, you know, like, hey, I'm in that community. Like, and they, I think there was introduction happening on Monday. And it was so cool to then see all these people studying birds. And I think there was one about plants last year as well. Um, it's just really, it's just really cool to see how you can then kind of like build a tribe and a community and discover people on, on Twitter these days. I find that really, really inspiring as well. Yeah, so that's been really good to see yeah, other people, I guess, at similar sort of stages as, as me, especially for Black Botanist Week. But in terms of like a specific person, I'd, I'm yet to find someone, which is a little bit sad for like, I'm, it's never too late, I guess. <laughs> Definitely not. Can you think of anybody that you just maybe like admire that you're like, oh, that person's cool. Like, it's good that they're doing what they're doing. It's in a different field, so in chemistry, which is um, Dr. Rachel Burks, who's just like unapologetically herself and just like a great role model. And she's really into like civil rights communication and equality and diversity inclusion work. So yeah, so in a different field. So I guess I, I guess admire her sort of attitude and like can do and like positivity. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the podcast. Wow, I'm so impressed with all the different things that Sarah is managing to do. She's got like so many different aspects to her work and I found this really fascinating. 
I find this this idea of looking at different time frames really interesting because obviously with animals you see them move in front of your eyes and you know some of them can be slow but you still see a movement and the the idea that plants might be crawling slowly towards different environments is just fascinating to me yeah or even creeping I liked that she used the word creeping it's so kind of visual I realized I am definitely guilty of the green carpet phenomenon that Sarah was talking about in terms of just not really thinking about grass very much. It was only in the lead up to this episode and in kind of looking at her research and thinking about it that it made me really consider more how many different species of grasses there might be, how they might each be being impacted differently. And the fact that even if we're surrounded by grasses, perhaps we don't really see the mixes that would be occurring in wild spaces yeah i think what was really interesting as well about the the point she raised about plant awareness disparity is the fact that i feel during lockdown we've spent so much time being in our houses and then you know being outside outdoors was kind of a I mean, for me, at least it was a bit of a highlight of my day. And I feel like I've been noticing plants way more than in previous years. And that, that connects really nicely to another other point, which was about experiencing nature with all your senses. And I feel, again, that's something that has really come through with spending, you know, more time inside. And I, I thought that was really interesting when she talked about, you know, her perfect day in White Ham and how she would like involve all our different senses. That's something that I feel we do forget from time to time that actually you know nature is not something that you just experience in one dimension and just look at it and it looks pretty it's like there's there's so much more to it and you can engage all your senses while experiencing it it's true and again i think it brings us to the bigger picture here which is the impact of of climate change sometimes people think that climate change is something that is happening far away and they don't really see the impact yet on their day-to-day lives but actually when we look at oxford you know the impact could be more floods and that's definitely something that for people living in oxford is a reality we we are seeing more and more floods and and it seems that it's getting more frequent every winter and so i find that really interesting as well to kind of link up there's really big issues, but then bringing that to that local level that Sarah knows so well. Another thing that I thought was interesting in our discussion with Sarah was the way that she related or didn't to the term conservationist. And I know that we have this kind of very all-encompassing definition of a conservationist, as in if you want to take conservation action and you care about conservation issues, then in our book, you would be a conservationist. But she was kind of hesitant to associate herself with the term. It's always interesting that distinction as well between conservation and ecology and that's something that sometimes I struggle a bit with like I did a degree in applied ecology and then my specialization within that degree was in conservation so for me they're kind of like related but I know that people sometimes have strong feelings towards one or the other so it's always interesting to see how people actually bring that term back to them and how they apply it to their work or not uh, in this case. I mean, I think for me, one of the biggest differences is that conservation is sometimes described as a mission-driven discipline. So even within the sciences, it is a science in which you have goals and perhaps you want the world to look a certain way. Whereas, for example, with ecology, a lot of the focus is on understanding and observing patterns and dynamics within nature. 
I, I think that's that's interesting. I've ne- I'd never really thought about it that way, but it, it makes sense to me now that you said it. The last point I wanted to touch on as well, back on the interview, is the way Sarah answered a question about role models and the fact that she didn't really see anyone that looked like her in this field of, of plant ecology. And that's something that obviously, you know, Sophia and I, we're, we're both white women, so we we have lots of privilege and we've clearly, I mean, for me at least, I can't speak for you, Sophia, but I know that I've grown as as a white girl, always seeing people that looked like me doing things in the natural world. And so I can imagine how difficult that might be when when you don't see people that look like you in this field. And the work that Sarah is doing with the Black British Biology Project, bringing these stories to to the spotlight, I think it's it's just so important. And we really need to make sure that we have more of representation in in our field, especially in conservation. Absolutely. One thing that I found really fascinating about Sarah's work is just the way that she's kind of working in the past and the present and the future all at the same time to increase representation um, with her Black British Biology Project, but then also with all the work that she's doing within the university to bring these issues to light and to kind of work on these task forces. And then also thinking about what kind of a mentor she might be in the future. And in some ways, it's not really fair that this burden is being put on her because she probably recognises the need for these kind of interventions and feels the need more than other white students, for example. So that calls up questions of how important it is to be an ally and support initiatives that you can see in your local areas or the spaces that you usually operate in, like your universities. Hearing her talk about the way that she felt like she didn't have a role model within her field, but that she did have Rochelle in another field who she really admired, made me think of her constellation of mentors and the way that she had said, you know, how maybe different people can give us different types of mentorships. Yeah, and I think that's a beautiful image to end the episode on, these constellations of mentors. I I love the idea that you can have people from very different fields kind of like teaching you and mentoring you in very different ways. I I think more and more people are keen on doing at the moment, kind of expanding on all these different fields and learning from different people rather than having like one mentor. So, so yeah, that's, that's it for this episode then. Thank you all for listening. And thank you so, so much to Sarah for joining us. And as usual, if you want to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, if you want to tell your friends about us, it helps people know that we exist. And you can also send us a voice note if you have any comments about this episode on podcast at conservationoptimism.org or on Twitter, if you feel like it, at conserveoptimism. And you can also reach out to Sarah directly if you come across any Black Britons in the history of the biological sciences. So you can reach her on Twitter at Sarah underscore Lil underscore plants. The Good Nature Podcast is hosted and produced by Sofia Castello-Etikel and myself, Julia Minier. Our music is by Matthew Kemp and our transcripts are available thanks to the help of Alexandra Davis. The bird sounds in this episode are from Spanak and are available on the Free Sounds Library. This season of Good Natured is supported by the University of Oxford's Departmental Public Engagement with Research Seed Fund, Synchronous Earth and the Weekly Fund for Nature.